As the Money Burns is an original podcast by Nikki Woodard. Based on historical research, this is a deep exploration into what happened to a set of actual heirs and heiresses to some of America's most famous fortunes when the Great Depression hits. Each episode has three primary sections. Section one is a narrative story. Section two goes deeper into the historical facts. Section three focuses on contemporary, emotional, and personal connections. Story recap. Debutante of her season, Doris Duke is too injured to enjoy her own coming out ball. True love devotee, Barbara Hutton fails in an attempt to reunite two forbidden lovers. Now back to As the Money Burns. Pinwheels. A special ball in the Big Apple kicks off the most prized debutante season. Elite debutantes will be kept busy with a never-ending whirl of activities, and participation is not optional. Section 1 Story Another season begins of debutantes emerging like butterflies from their cocoons, spreading their wings in society. Each year has a fresh new batch, as the last years must step aside to make room for the new. Some have dropped out of the limelight due to financial complications, but there are many more ready to fill the empty spots. Another young set of hopefuls making themselves beautiful for a round of very special activities. Teas, luncheons, dinners, and backgammon parties fill the schedule, but it is the dances and the balls that are really the focus of excitement. And now, teen heiresses, the tall, awkward Doors Duke, and chubby, budding fashionista Barbara Hutton are making their entrances into society, possibly two of the wealthiest this season, so all eyes are on them. First up, Friday, October 18, 1930. The fashionables and the elegants gather at the new Hotel Pierre in New York. It's the annual October Ball, the fundraiser for the Association of Day Nurseries of New York. The brand new Georgian hotel opened only days before. Owner and namesake Charles Pierre intends to cater purely to ballroom, coming out, and banquet trade, ensuring his long-reigning dominance and popularity. Debutantes come and go, but Pierre is always a favorite. Everything about the hotel appeals to feminine romantic fantasies. The deep rose carpets with small rose wreath designs cover the two-tiered main restaurant, which oval foyer connects to the double black marble stairways leading up to a cream gold and mirrored oval foyer adjoining the center of attention and activity. The lush ballroom surrounded by paneled mirrors separated by columns of rose marble from French quarries and a Georgian frescoed ceiling with a crystal chandelier with an occasional ruby here and there. The decor hearkening back to the glorious era of Versailles, Louis XIV to XVI, and a beauty that shouldn't be hidden behind elaborate floral arrangements. Downstairs, the hotel's grill room has a wall of glass separating diners from the kitchen while watching their entrees being made. A breakfast room on the 41st floor and the highest in the city will surely draw in a crowd. Only two shops are in the hotel, a florist and a beauty salon. October 1st had the first peek inside. From its opening on the 15th, the ballroom will be booked through the season for various coming-out activities, luncheons, dinners, dances, and balls. Debutantes come and go, but Pierre outlasts them all. Pierre also cultivates a dinner and supper club of high social standing. Goulds, Vanderbilts, and Huttons. 
all of whom are investors in this new venture. Barbara Hutton's Uncle Ned, formerly known as E.F. Hutton, being one of them. A coincidence maybe that Barbara marshals the committee for tonight's ball along with Grace Green Roosevelt, granddaughter of former President Theodore Roosevelt, and Josephine Fifi Lambier, who made her stage debut a year earlier but lost her mother in October 1929 and her father back in 1913. Each of the young ladies will debut this season with Barbara's own debutante ball before the year's end. Barbara's deep blue eyes flitter about seeking a future escort for her big night. This dreamy event is in the perfect setting to meet the love of her life. After all, these events' end goal is marriage. Barbara sighs as she soaks up the glamour. It's hard not to get swept up into the evening's mesmerizing fantasy. An array of velvets, laces, and ermine in the latest fashions parade around the ballroom. A beautiful red and gold metallic dress is particularly eye-catching. So many beautiful people. Another set of debutantes primping for the big holiday coming out season. As the lovely young ladies show off their fine new garments, they are without one long-standing element, flower corsages. Deemed undesirable due to its likely wilting would otherwise ruin the perfection required. Only the guest of honor dances with a bouquet. The October Ball is an Italian frolic and make-believe party. The highly popular Rudy Valet Orchestra performs through the night. The Midnight Supper features a cabaret performance. Across the dance floor, last year debutante Miss June Blossom is whirled by Ward Fox through a new Foxtrot Tango. Ward is an heir to a wine fortune and a former law student who prefers dancing and has gained international acclaim performing for royalty in Egypt, Spain, Belgium, India, and Great Britain. This last spring, Ward even gave instruction on a few new steps to David, the Prince of Wales. The lovely Miss June was the dove of last year's Peace Ball in Manhattan before her own official debut at the Ritz-Carlton. Other entertainments include Libby Holman singing the blues and caricaturist Zito whipping out lightning portrait sketches. The high society said enjoy a blissful evening. Their financial wizard father is seemingly unworried over the lack of recovery nearly one year after the Wall Street crash. One might not realize there might be some hard economic times still lingering in the air. Society reporter Nancy Randolph gives Mrs. Richard D. Tucker the fashion award for the evening, a gown in lustrous metal cloth of red and gold lame, a cowl neckline with a deep V in the back, fitted at the waist indicated by a narrow sash girdle. The skirt flares out but misses three inches in the front while escaping a brief train in the back. Simple lines and cut barring all ornamentation to not distract from the richness of the material. Now as unique and beautiful that frock was, there did happen to be a near duplicate in black satin with a turquoise blue girdle. This second dress was worn by Mrs. Potter Sodwadell. Next event is in Tuxedo Park, an exclusive enclave of those preferring to remain private. However, its biggest legacy is the bobcat coattail attire that bears its name, Tuxedo, named after its debut in America during the Autumn Ball held at Tuxedo Park. This year's Autumn Ball occurs on October 25th at the Tuxedo Park Clubhouse with gold and white chrysanthemums amidst the masses of amber and crimson fall foliage. Lilting jazz plays as the social butterflies gather for yet another dance. The delectable Debs, as the press refers to them, has Doris Duke among them. Always a new set of girls coming in and replacing the past. Rumors and whispers about some of the last year's Debs working as salesgirls. 
Will they be next? For now, anyways, best to concentrate on the endless round of events, both big and small. Every day and night filled with the smaller luncheons, teas, dinners, and multiple activities leading up to the next, including the larger dances and balls and even grand-scale events like the Peace Ball in Manhattan, with still another Peace Ball in Washington, D.C. in the spring, the December Ball, Yuletide Balls, and multiple, inevitable, individual debutante balls, up to six competing events on any given night. A deb can hardly catch her breath or rest her feet before another event takes place. A never-ending pinwheel of social doings, spinning gaily into the new year. Section 2. History and Historiography In January, February, and March 1930, the stock market had improved substantially. Then in April, the recovery seemed to lose momentum. In June, another drop occurred, and then a steady decline week by week through June 1932. News reports continually mentioned that the hard times were close to being over. Forecasts were optimistic that improvement was just on the horizon and that the worst had already come. Thus, people who could afford it continued living life as it should be. Parties and plans may be a little less extravagant, but still happening. Here and there, a mention of bank failure occurring in random places across the country didn't take much note. 92% of the bank failures happened in rural areas of less than 10,000 people. This is unrelated to the Dust Bowl. Those droughts came in later in three waves, 1934, 1936, and 1939-40. Still, there were 758 bank suspensions with deposits of $353,500,000 by June of 1930. In the cities, bank mergers, also referred as group banking, seemed more likely for the need of better pooled resources and offering more stability. The end of small independent banks seemed inevitable. By October 1930, rumors of bank failures and bank runs started to appear everywhere. Two biggest ones involved Havana, Cuba and Lisbon, Portugal. Yes, international news covered these two events. Havana's difficulties began in late September and early October, Within three hours of notification, banks from Atlanta flew over $45 million to secure the Havana Bank. Then on October 22nd, the biggest national bank in northern Portugal failed, causing government intervention over losses and affecting over $75 million in deposits. The mere hint of a bank failure would lead to a bank run, which is when bank depositors rushed to withdraw their money, thus causing even more bank failures. These events, more than the stock market crash of 1929, would be one of the lead factors of economic ruin in the Great Depression. Another failure closer to home will soon kick off the next level of the Great Depression and two years of continual panics. In tough times, it's always good to remember there's a better way of life. Thus, the super-rich became a lot more interesting to the masses. Society reporters and editors alert readers of the comings and goings. In finding old articles, I kept running across one name. Nancy Randolph, primarily from New York Daily News, whose articles would be syndicated across the country. Anytime a name keeps reappearing, it is a flag to investigate a little further. Hence, the development of Cabina Wright, Jakey Astor, and Frank Shields into the primary story. Nancy Randolph was the society editor with a long history. She was a pen name for multiple reporters, like Dear Abby. In 1928, and for the next 12 years, the role was filled by Ennis Calloway Robb, who moved to New York for hardcore journalism and was shocked when she had to take over the society pages. 
her only interest in society's comings and goings, she remarked in 1935. In other words, we don't give a hand about Mrs. Vanderbilt giving a luncheon unless her guests include Al Capone and the Archbishop of Canterbury. Innes loved mixing her hardcore journalism skills to apply to the society reports, adding depth and context. She started her journalistic career as a teen who won a hot air balloon trip and wrote a sensational article for the local paper. She would go on with several serious writing assignments and would eventually be one of the first American female frontline reporters during World War II. In September 1929, she married a public relations executive with the last name Rob and had a long journalistic career covering Hitler's use of poison gas to the Duke of Windsor's marriage, a.k.a. former David Prince of Wales, the abdicated King Edward VIII. Another popular reporter is Charlie Knickerbocker, Charlie being an upper-class pronunciation of Charlie. Knickerbocker refers to the early Dutch settlers and their short-pant culottes that formed the earlier colonial elites. The pseudonym was first used by John Keller in 1891 in the New York Recorder and moving with him to the New York American, where it continued under other names until 1919. Then in 1919 to 1942, it was used by Maury Henry Biddle Paul for William Randolph Hearst, the New York American, and the New York Journal American. Maury, as Charlie, was a particular nemesis to Doris Duke. He first praised her, then took a quick turn of dislike and continually published the most unflattering portraits of her. He also coined the term Cafe Society. Later, Jackie Kennedy's fashion designer Oleg Cassini's brother, Igor Cassini, and his assistant and occasional ghostwriter, Liz Smith, yes, the longtime syndicated gossip colonist who passed away in 2017, used the moniker. Igor, as Charlie, would coin the term Jet Set. The Charlie Knickerbocker pseudonym was last used by Charles Van Rensselaer from 1963 to 1965. This latter Charles came from a long-established family and whose brother Philip was brief companion to Barbara Hutton in her later years and wrote her biography, Million Dollar Baby, after her death. Charles would later be replaced by Eileen Maley, who would write under the pseudonym Susie Knickerbocker. Other reporters and gossip colonists include Elsa Maxwell and later Cabina Wright in one of her many incarnations in trying to survive and make a living after her husband lost their fortune. Society always involves money in needing a place to go. The Pierre opened in October 1930 to great fanfare. Investors included Otto Kahn, Walter Chrysler, and Barbara's uncle, E.F. Hutton, husband to post-serial heiress Marjorie Weather Post, another investor, Robert Jerry Sr., grandson of the inventor of gerrymandering, also provided the lot of his old family mansion at 5th Avenue and 61st Street. The 41-storied building is designed by architect Schultz and Weaver of the future Waldorf Astoria. The Pierre cost $15 million to build. Born Pierre Casalasco, restaurateur and society caterer Charles Pierre left his Corsican family restaurant and hotel to study Paris haute cuisine and hospitality, then moved to London and New York. He worked for nine years at Sherry's, then the Ritz-Carlton, before setting up his own two different consecutive restaurants, with Charles Pierre closed to venture into the new hotel after being fed up with the democratization of public manners. He fully intended to cater to the elites he had become so accustomed and was one of their favorites. The hotel would fall into bankruptcy in 1932. In 1938, oil man J. Paul Getty bought the Pierre for $2.5 million and converted 75 rooms into cooperative apartments in 1959. Elizabeth Taylor, Aristotle Anacids, Sumner Redstone, and Yves St. Laurent would be some of the long-term residents. The tuxedo had a resurgence of popularity in the 1930s. 
The dinner jacket style was first designed in midnight blue for the Prince of Wales, who later became King Edward VII, in 1865 to use at Sandringham. While his mother, Queen Victoria, reigned, Edward served as the epitome of fashionable leisure elite, stylish and socially active, even friends with Sir Thomas Sopwith. When Queen Victoria withdrew from duties during widowhood, Edward pioneered the royal public appearance for activities. As his mother was the grandmother of Europe, Edward was its uncle, and he worried his nephew, Kaiser Willem II, would likely bring the world to war, which happened four years after Edward's death. Another nephew was the doomed Tsar Nicholas II, the doppelganger cousin to Edward's own son, George V. Edward was the longest-serving heir apparent to the throne after 59 years and 45 days, only to be surpassed in length by the current Prince Charles, now 73-plus years in waiting. The tuxedo was brought to the United States possibly in 1886 by Griswold Lorillard, or more commonly attributed to the merchant James Brown Potter, at the Autumn Ball in October at Tuxedo Park. By 1888, it increased in popularity from strict formal settings to summer and informal attire. It went out of vogue during the 1920s, then resurged during the 1930s as the supreme evening attire for men. Tuxedo Park was developed in 1885 as an exclusive enclave for Manhattan's wealthiest. The term tuxedo is derived from the word for bear or wolf, likely from Algonquian, Petuxipo, or more specifically, Lenape language, tuxedo, which means crooked river. Much like the way our story twists and turns, never flowing in a neat and straight direction. Filled with pretty, colorful, and hypnotic distractions discarded whenever the wind blows in a different way, much like the simple childhood toys of pinwheels. Section 3, Contemporary and Personal Relevance So far, we've spent over 18 months in lockdown pandemic situations. Still, none of it seems really clear. Endless promises that things are getting better countered with countless charges of things getting worse. The truth is an uncomfortable middle. Yes, there are illnesses raging through the population. There is some medical relief, and yet Mother Nature can outsmart the best of us. Things are better than the fear mongerers want us to believe. There are people profiting from this situation. And meantime, there are dire economic situations and social instability still occurring, which will have long-lasting consequences. This weird ambivalence is what the beginning of the Great Depression was like. Polar ends, hints of disaster, glimpses of hope, all mingling in a confusing mess. Hindsight is 2020, and history repeats itself. Human nature is very cyclical, which is why I've spent most of my life studying it with wonder, curiosity, and passion. I have studied multiple cultures trying to connect further with friends from different backgrounds. A game of sorts, as within all manners of cultures, one can find the same situations recurring. Betrayals, scandals, greed, envy, and social identities formed and wielded to destroy others, while also destroying those within. Then all is discarded as the cycle begins again. Childish innocence lost and shed along the way. Social contagions can be both realities ignored and exploited. The aftermath leaves no one untouched in its wake. A backlash coming for the seemingly social media, insta-perfect lifestyle presented to the public of a shallow, meaningless life contrasted with harsher realities. Can you feel the claustrophobia of it all caving in? 
the tales I'm weaving are long and complicated. Many little tangents that when brought together bring the full color and complexity of the error. We've gotten a few hints into the future, but we haven't yet to cross the line into darkness. We are only a few more episodes away when it all turns darker. Next, when we return to As the Money Burns, as the Met Opera season begins, a society hostess continues presenting the front all as well. Will this be her swan song? Until then. As the Money Burns is an original podcast written, produced, and voiced by Nikki Woodard based on historical research. Archival music has been provided by Past Perfect Vintage Music. Check out their website at www.pastperfect.com. Please come visit us at As the Money Burns via Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Transcripts, timeline, episode guide, and character bios are available at asthemoneyburns.com. <laughs>